Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will take our first bites out of Al-Mansur's meaty reign by discussing the relationship he re-established between his caliphate and the lands from which his clan's supporters first swept his dynasty into power. Since the Khurasaniyya of the East were the only non-Arabs to wield military might in the Ummah, this will be a roundabout way of exploring the limits of Arab power in the early Abbasid era. Episode 44 The Ghost of Abu Muslim One of the most salient attributes of the Abbasid revolution was that it first emerged from the eastern land of Khurasan. Now, we have already spent lots of our time detailing how the Umayyads had dealt with the perennially troublesome province, and modern commentaries usually sum it all up by saying something along the following lines. The harsh treatment, which the non-Arabs of the east had endured from the Umayyad caliphate, instilled in them a strong antipathy one which culminated in their overwhelming support for the rebellion that ultimately toppled the ruling clan. While that's all true, it is a maximally reductive way of stating the East's overall take on the Arabs. Things were far more nuanced in reality. The attitudes towards the Ummah and its young religion ranged as wide as you'd imagine, from the scornful disdain of conservative Zoroastrians to the fervent idealism of new converts, with everything else in between. And the people of the East had all sorts of folks. Xenophobes, devotees, sycophants, highwaymen, mercenaries, farmers, truth-seekers, entertainers, craftsmen, and others just out to make a dirham. Hostility towards the Arabs flared up every now and again, but it was by no means a defining feature of the region's peoples. While the Umayyads were deeply unpopular, Nasr ibn Sayyar was clearly beloved by the locals, and as a result he had great success holding the province together despite being effectively cut off from the rest of the caliphate. Harith's pro-Mawali rebellion before and throughout Nasr's term as governor also attracted plenty of support, giving us more evidence of local engagement with the Arabs. But the best example of Khurasani endorsement of an Arab political project came with Abu Muslim's da'wah. Yeah, I know it was the Abbasid da'wah, but as far as those in the East were concerned, it was the charismatic Abu Muslim al-Khurasani, one of their own, who had captured their imagination and presented them with a vision of a caliphate they could get behind. While I maintain that we don't know enough about the man to be sure of his origins, he was probably the son of an enslaved Khurasani war captive who grew up in various parts of the caliphate. He must have held on to some links to his ancestor's identity, because it is plain as day that he was the reason many in Khurasan had supported the Dawah at all. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let me establish the structure of today's episode, because it's going to be a long one. Rebellions in the name of Abu Muslim is one of three main subjects we'll cover today, the other two being the fate of the independent kingdoms of northern Iran and the government of the caliphate's easternmost province, Khurasan. Each of these three will give us plenty to discuss on its own, 
and I'm not divvying them up along these lines haphazardly. The reason I'm taking this approach is to highlight the Caliph's masterful handling of a sprawling, multifaceted crisis in the East. On the other hand, I'm keeping them all in the same episode because considering them as separate crises would distort the scale of the problem and fail to convey Al-Mansur's impressive conduct at the helm. Today's episode may be longer than usual, but if I can keep everything neat and tidy, it should be the right format for this part of our narrative. To keep things broadly chronological, we'll have to jump between the three headlines, but I'll point it out when we do. I guess the final thing to clarify before proceeding is the nomenclature. People of Khurasan is used a lot in our sources, sometimes even in reference to those outside Khurasan, and it is the closest we have to a label applied to everyone in the East. The Mawali were those natives who had converted to Islam, and the Khurasaniya were the ones who had then gone on to join the Abbasid armies. So when I say Khurasaniya, I mean soldiers. The number of Mawali must have risen considerably when Abu Muslim was in charge, and he had probably marshaled around 50,000 loyal Khurasaniya to his fight against the renegade Abbasid, Abdullah ibn Ali. To quickly recap our opening, Abu Muslim was a huge deal in Khurasan. I really can't make this point explicit enough, but we need to move on if we're going to get through all we have lined up for today. Given how important Abu Muslim was to the people of the East, it should come as no surprise that his execution in 755 did not go down well over there. Again, the locals were not some monolith, and perhaps surprisingly, the Khurasaniya and the Mawadi had the mildest reactions to the news. Money is a good explanation for why they were so subdued. The soldiers were getting paid by the state, and most of the Mawadi had adopted Islam in order to earn a living. While Christians and Jews could live freely in Muslim company, since they belonged to Abrahamic faiths which Islam saw itself as a successor to, the same forgiving attitude was not extended to Zoroastrians, for whom it was still necessary to convert if one wished to reside in a Muslim city. Many did so to be able to live off the Arabs, who in turn relied on these folks to survive so far away from home. So no, the eminent fury didn't explode out of either of these two. Rather, it was the third group of locals, non-Muslim natives, the vast majority of the East, who felt irredeemably betrayed by the caliph's slaying of their champion and paragon, Abu Muslim. The first thing Al-Tabari writes about following the execution of Abu Muslim is the revolt of a man named Sunpath in a town by Nishapur. Not only was Sunpath the leader of a noble house that had held great influence in pre-Islamic times, but our sources insist that he was also a Zoroastrian religious figure. While they push this claim quite adamantly, we need to compensate for their tendency to attribute religious motivations to these movements. It no doubt stems from the oral material itself, but from our vantage point, we can see why an ummah united by faith would perceive those resisting it as heretics fighting for false beliefs, seeing their leaders as high priests of dangerous and outlandish doctrines. I'm not even saying that this was an intentional or strategic choice. It just happened to anyone who stood opposed to the Ummah, even to Arab-led movements like the Karajites. When Hadith led his pro-Mawadi movement in Khurasan towards the end of the Umayyad dynasty, he was accused of consorting with a blasphemous sheikh named Jahan, who held unorthodox beliefs about God and the Qur'an, often portrayed as a corrupter of the pure faith. Jahan's views were actually pretty tame 
All he had said was that he did not believe God had a physical voice. And this was exaggerated into the heresy of having denied the Qur'an was the word of God. So to continue with the example of Sunpad, he was said to have preached a creed introduced by his master, Beha Farid, which claimed that Abu Muslim was a holy incarnation of something, and that by killing him the caliphate had sinned against all that was divine. Now this was silly, because Abu Muslim himself had hung Beha Farid for causing troubles a few years earlier. So I guess the joke here is that Sunpad was inviting others to follow his deceased master's teachings by worshipping his master's killer. If you break it down, individual elements from that story do make sense. Beha Farid had been a Zoroastrian preacher who caused a ruckus when he tried to introduce new elements into the faith, and the death of Abu Muslim had led many to revolt. But when the Arabs discussed this rebellion against their ummah internally, they organized these pieces into something ridiculous. You know, to make them easier to ridicule. Anyway, let us not confuse ourselves with the Arab versions of events, which rarely make much sense when it comes to other people's beliefs. I only relay them to give you a better idea of what's actually in our sources. Sunpad was a nobleman who led a successful revolt. Starting from Khurasan, he made his way west, taking over a few small towns, then a couple larger cities, culminating in the conquest of Rai. This was a big deal, because apparently Abu Muslim had left a colossal amount of money in Rai before leaving the east for the last time a year or two earlier. He had pooled most of the taxes from the various treasuries of the east there, so it was a truly massive hoard, and this loot was now being used to finance the insurrection against the caliphate. His repeated victories earned Sunpad great prominence, and he won the support of many, both in Isfahan and beyond. It took the caliph almost a whole year to send an army to deal with Sunpath. This wasn't negligence on his part. He simply couldn't commit military resources right away. Having sort of emerged from the east, the young Abbasid dynasty was yet to make a strong impression in other parts of the caliphate, such as Africa and Western Asia, and so the caliph still needed his armies there to secure these relatively quiet regions. Then there was this seemingly invincible Karajite in Jazeera, named Mulabbad al-Shaybani. Now this is a bit of a tangent, but it's worth it, and will eventually tie back into why there was all this anarchy in the east. Mulabbad first defeated a considerable garrison of 1,000 men, then their relief of another thousand. After that, he beat 2,000 of the region's best soldiers. Then, after triumphing against three increasingly larger armies, the governor himself, a son of Qahtaba named Hamid, led a large host against the Karajites. He lost so badly that he had to pay a ransom of 100,000 pieces of silver just to be allowed to retreat. After one more guy tried and failed to defeat al-Shaybani with an even larger force, the caliph finally asked a rising star in his army, Khazim ibn Khuzayma, to do something about this unbeatable Karajite. Get ready to meet the greatest Arab general since, oh, I don't know, Qutayba ibn Muslim, Al-Muhallab ibn Sufra, Uqba ibn Nafir, maybe even since Khalid ibn al-Walid himself. I don't expect you to remember the names and claims to fame of these legendary Arab generals, but if you did, then color me impressed. Pop quiz over. Time to introduce Khazim ibn Khuzayma. He was part of the Abbasid project before it was cool, and was one of the 70 preachers supporting the 12 principles in the Da'wah's crude hierarchy. 
Khazim belonged to the Tamim tribe in Maru, the Arab capital of Khurasan. His tribe initially kept him at arm's length, but his genius on the battlefield soon made him their pride and joy, and earned him acclaim from across the caliphate. I would tell you to commit his name to memory, but he should pop up in all our episodes on the next few caliphs, so I'm sure it'll stick. Khazim took 8,000 loyal Arabs from Maru and destroyed the Karajite threat in a heartbeat. To be fair, it was a bit of hard work, but he basically outmaneuvered al-Shaybani at every turn and had a keen eye for his weaknesses whenever the two met on the battlefield. One narration in Al-Tabari complains about how it was due to Sunpa's rebellion that the situation in Jazeera took so long to contain. But if that's true, then the opposite must equally hold. After all, the eight armies Mulabbad al-Shaybani had defeated in Jazeera could all have been mobilized east if it weren't for the threat posed by the Karajite. Anyway, now we know why the Caliph couldn't immediately send large armies east to reassert control, and as a bonus, we got a cool little preview of Khazim in action. Late in 755, the Caliph finally sent an army of 10,000 led by a loyalist named Ibn Marrar to deal with Sunpath. Ibn Marrar's army met the rebels somewhere between modern-day Tehran and Hamadan, and the Arabs won a crushing victory, though I'm sure they exaggerate its scale when they boast of slaying over 60,000 and taking tens of thousands more as captives. Sunpath himself escaped beyond the Elburz mountains to the north, where he was killed by a local noble, probably for control of all that treasure he still had. We'll turn to this mountainous part of Iran along the Caspian coast next, as it will prove quite central to today's episode. But let us first conclude Ibn Marrar's story. Basically, Abu Muslim's treasure had achieved legendary status by now, and everyone was obsessed with getting their hands on it. Right after hearing about his victory, the caliph wrote to Ibn Marrar asking him to send the riches back west, but the commander had already distributed what little war booty had been won to the troops, as per Arab raiding tradition. Fearing the consequences of his actions, he refused to respond or return, and some accounts claim he went so far as to rescind his pledge to al-Mansur. Yikes. It's a strange reaction. It sounds a little too extreme to me. I mean, couldn't he just have explained that no great treasure had been won? Whatever he did, it was the wrong move, because the caliph sent an army led by another loyalist to take care of him. Ibn Marar was defeated, and his escape to Azerbaijan proved short-lived after its people killed him and forwarded his head to the caliph. And so, Sunpad's rebellion had been tamped out, but Abu Muslim's treasure was still at large. It was now in that mountainous part of Iran by the Caspian, an area important enough for us to pause for a second and look back at its history since the Arabs first burst out on the scene. While the treasure did give us a smooth transition, I should point out that we are switching our attention from rebellions inspired by Abu Muslim's death to the independent Caspian kingdoms of Iran. After the fall of the Sasanian Empire back in 637, the mountainous bits near the Caspian proved too remote for the Arabs to invade fully, and so Tabaristan and other nearby kingdoms became tributary states, agreeing to pay the Arabs a fraction of what they had once paid the Shahanshah. It was not a very stable arrangement, though. Whenever the Arabs got busy with their fitnas, these Caspian kingdoms would just keep the money. That's why we heard about plenty of reconquests there, which were basically campaigns the Arabs led to intimidate these communities back into compliance. They were never conquered, however. 
Yazid ibn al-Muhallab was the Arab general who tried most doggedly, but with little success. We have other stories from the region, like when Tabaristan sheltered Karajites, or when they worked with the Ummah to rid themselves of unwelcome Karajites, but generally their relationship to the Caliphate was that of on-again, off-again tributaries. There were a handful of states in the region, but Tabaristan was the biggest, and so that's where we'll keep our focus. For now, it was still ruled over by Khurshid, its king or Isbahbad. Khurshid may have stopped paying tribute during the third fitna. It's not clear, but we know that he accepted an invitation from Abu Muslim to transfer his allegiance to the Abbasid state for a better tax rate. Fast forward a few years, Abu Muslim had been executed, Sunpad came looking for shelter, and what's that he had in tow? Stores of treasure? Yes, please. Al-Mansur's approach to dealing with the Isbahbad gives us one of the earliest examples of his creative approach to problem-solving. He found a cousin of Khurshid's who was willing to play ball and recognized him as Isbahbad. While this ultimately failed to bring Khurshid down, it did bring him to the negotiating table. That's where Al-Mansur squeezed him hard, working out an expensive detente where Khurshid got to keep the treasure but had to pay the Ummah as much as he had paid the Shahanshah once upon a time. It's a shame that our sources almost elide these negotiations entirely. I, for one, was deeply impressed with Al-Mansur's out-of-the-box thinking here. Finally, a caliph who wasn't all just threats and intimidation. This new status quo will hold for another four to five years, so let's take a look elsewhere before we return to watch it unravel. All right, let's now give a short account about our third subject, Khurasan proper. The thing to remember about Khurasan is that while it was really far away from the rest of the caliphate, its capital, Maru, was the only major Arab city east of Iraq, founded after 60,000 settlers had been sent there by Ziyad ibn Abi Sufyan in the 670s. So despite the remoteness of the province, this capital gave Arab governors a base from which they could control the surrounding lands and populations, as long as they could command their own men, that is. Its governor at the beginning of Al-Mansur's reign was Abu Dawood, who used to be Abu Muslim's deputy and had served him as a close lieutenant for years. In fact, Abu Dawood had been pretty instrumental in getting the Dawah started, so he had good connections in Khurasan, where he was strongly associated with the memory of the beloved Abu Muslim. This surely went a long way towards minimizing the number and severity of any uprisings against the caliphate in the province. Overall, Khurasan was quieter than the other lands we are discussing today. Things were pretty different right across the eastern border, though, where the neighboring Tang dynasty in China was going through a perilous rebellion. While the following is mostly from outside our sources, I am importing it into our discussion because it spotlights the caliph's international outlook. We will have a full episode on foreign affairs during al-Mansur's reign down the line, but since we're focusing on the East today, it seemed fitting to include this here, especially considering that there isn't that much to tell. The An-Lushan Rebellion was an eight-year span of disorder that touched the reigns of three Chinese emperors. It falls way outside this show's ambit, so I'm going to be very brief. A general named An-Lushan started an uprising in 756, so practically at the outset of Al-Mansur's reign, attempting to replace the Tang dynasty with the Yan dynasty. It started out pretty strong, and the emperor first fled to Sichuan in the southwest, 
then abdicated after he grew fearful of his own starving and exhausted troops. His son took over, and the new emperor's generals left no stone unturned in their search for support fighting against this rebellion. They allied with the nearby Uyghur Kaganate by establishing marriage ties with their elders, and when they asked, al-Mansur offered a few thousand troops from his Khurasani armies. This was like two years into his reign, and only five years after the decisive battle of Talas between the Caliphate and the Chinese. The Caliph's support during this crucial period sort of repaired the relationship between the two powers, because we don't hear of any hostilities after the Tang's eventual triumph. The Arab troops were even allowed to settle in China. Coupled with the notable lack of expansionary effort into Central Asia, it becomes clear that al-Mansur had no interest in growing his borders so far east, only in establishing a secure hold on the lands already under Abbasid control. This concludes the first chunk of our episode, in which we introduced each of our three main subjects. A rebellion in the name of Abu Muslim, the situation with the independent mountainous kingdoms of northern Iran, and had a bit about Khurasan. All the events we discussed happened in the first few years of the new caliph's reign. Al-Mansur had become caliph in mid-754, and he had Abu Muslim fight off his uncle Abdullah ibn Ali for a few months before executing him, probably in early 755. That either kicked off or invigorated Sunpad's rebellion in Isfahan, which in turn loosened the caliphate's hold on the tributary states in the region. Although we've been discussing these two themes separately, we can clearly see how they are connected. Basically, the East was breaking away, whether it was by reneging on agreements with the caliphate or through open and armed rebellion. The locals were hoping to regain a level of independence. It is not a coincidence, therefore, that these problems flared up and died down together. They depended entirely on the level of Abbasid influence in the East, and after Abu Muslim's assassination, that was pretty low. We'll stick to the subject of Khurasan as we inch forward into al-Mansur's reign. There isn't much to say about the other two for now, as the peace in Tabaristan held for a few years, stabilizing that part of the caliphate. And while the east remained restive, no major rebellions are reported, for now. Abu Dawood ruled Khurasan from Maru for about four years, until one day in 758, when he fell to his death from a high balcony while yelling orders to his men, making it clear that not all deaths in service of the caliphate were equally glamorous. He was replaced by a guy called Abdul Jabbar, who had been a sort of police chief in Iraq. Abdul Jabbar would prove to be a poor choice, though every source tells it differently. Some say he started off by killing renegade Hashemites and then started shedding blood too close to the Abbasid branch of the clan. Other accounts write that he began assassinating men loyal to the caliph in secret, others still that he executed too many of the Khurasaniyya's leaders. Whatever it was, it had to do with killing a problematically high number of commanders, only to replace them with his own loyalists. Kudos to al-Mansur for paying attention to this so quickly, because it took him less than a year to grow suspicious of Abdul Jabbar's actions. One account tells of the caliph discussing his doubts with other Abbasids back in Iraq and how they all refused to believe that Abdul Jabbar was shady, arguing in his favor and finding excuses for his behavior. Al-Mansur decided to test the waters by writing to Abdul Jabbar with orders for him to send the armies of Khurasan west, 
the idea being that if the governor refused, he was probably up to something. Abdul Jabbar replied that he couldn't spare the men, and that any weakening of his armies could cost the caliphate the entire province. What with all the disarray in the east, this was a valid excuse, so Al-Mansur did him one better, and said that Khurasan was too precious to ever be lost, and that he was going to send him reinforcements instead, thousands of loyal men led by even more loyal commanders, to secure the Ummah's hold over the vital province. To this, Abdul Jabbar came back saying that he worried there wasn't enough food to go around, and the caliph's well-intended support would only starve to death. This response convinced al-Mansur that Abdul Jabbar was trying to be slick, and that all he cared about was installing his own men in these newly vacant command positions. What he planned to do afterwards was irrelevant. Nothing good could come from his securing that much influence and autonomy. Well, al-Mansur was not about to let that happen. He really did put that army together, and wrote to Abdul Jabbar that help was on the way. But what's truly impressive about the caliph here is that he took the time to really think about his response. I'm not just referring to his subtle testing of Abdul Jabbar before attacking either, though that was pretty commendable. Al-Mansur realized that the reason this was happening was because Khurasan was so far away, and because he had basically burned his bridges with its people after having executed Abu Muslim. He concluded that a member of the Abbasid clan had to go rebuild the clan's reputation in Khurasan. After all, if a punk like Abdul Jabbar could outmaneuver the caliph simply by virtue of his proximity, then what hope did the caliphate have of holding on to the province? Al-Mansur's long-term thinking didn't stop there either. The man he picked for this ambitious and critical project was none other than his eldest son, Muhammad. In this choice, you can see early signs of succession planning. After all, personal support from Khurasan was almost sufficient on its own for any Abbasid to make a forceful bid for the throne. So who better to go after this crucial chunk of the caliphate? And so what if Muhammad was still just 15 years old? There was an easy fix for that. He just had to have some experienced commander go with him, and the caliph already knew the perfect man for the job. The name Khazim ibn Khuzayma on its own was enough to topple Abdul Jabbar in Khurasan. As soon as the Tamim heard the caliph was sending Khazim to escort his own son Muhammad in support of the forces of Maru, they rejoiced. Later, when they found out that their governor intended to resist al-Mansur's armies, they started a mutiny and were quickly joined by some of the many parties whom Abdul Jabbar had alienated during his power grab. The Khurasaniya were especially present in this uprising, possibly seeing the rebellion against this Iraqi outsider as an opportunity to avenge Abu Muslim and Abdul Jabbar was dealt with before the caliph's armies had reached the city. At least, that's the version I like. There's no consensus in our sources, and some write of a fierce battle in which Khazim made quick work of Abdul Jabbar's forces, then shipped the loser back west to the caliph and a cruel fate. In most versions, Khazim wasn't even there, and all the glory goes to the caliph's son, Muhammad. Abdul Jabbar's replacement was Asid bin Abdullah al-Khuzai, an early member of the Da'wah who had served under Abu Muslim and was widely recognized for his bravery in war. The choice is a telling one, and it shows that al-Mansur was fully aware of the mood in the East following his decision to execute the popular Abu Muslim, something he may have only fully appreciated after he saw how differently the last two governors were regarded in the East. 
He deliberately empowered those who had been closely associated with the Khurasani governor in that province, Arabs like Abu Dawood and now Asid. As we've already said, Abu Dawood had been Abu Muslim's deputy, while Asid was renowned as one of Abu Muslim's bravest heroes on the front lines. So we see that the caliph now sought the Arabs that had been closest to Abu Muslim to rule the province, and this sign of appreciation for the standing of the man he had put to death was apparently all it took to keep Khurasan in check. On top of all that, he sent his son to the east, to make him known to its people and rebuild his clan's relationship with them. This stuff with Abdul Jabbar took place around 759, so five years into Al-Mansur's reign. The governor's insubordination was the primary issue the caliph sent his son Muhammad to deal with, but the armies were also meant to remedy the general lack of Abbasid control in the east. This is where we let go of the theme of Khurasan for the last time and return to the independent kingdoms of northern Iran. After Abdul Jabbar proved to be a paper tiger, the caliph wrote to his son with orders to use the forces he had with him to invade Tabaristan. It wasn't the worst idea, especially since it would catch the Isbahbad by surprise as he was busy warring with a local rival at the time. The whole operation was probably more about winning some accolades for the caliph's son, however, who around now begins to be referred to as al-Mahdi, a title with strong religious connotations, especially to the Hashimiyya found throughout the east of the caliphate. The last person to seriously refer to himself as the Mahdi was Mukhtar al-Thaqafi during the second fitna, and it is to him that the Hashimiyya are loosely attributed. Mukhtar's fair treatment of the Mawadi ensured that his beliefs spread among them even after his short-lived movement had been defeated. In any case, Muhammad slash al-Mahdi didn't win that war, he only got it started. Upon hearing about the surprise assault, Khurshid turned his armies around and rushed to defend his lands. His erstwhile opponent wisely decided to ally with him, reasoning that if the Arabs managed to take Tabaristan, they would surely come after his domain next. The fighting was a stalemate for the first several months, but after the caliph put the right men in charge, everything just worked like a charm. Khazim and this guy called Omar ibn Ala get most of the credit for accomplishing what no Arab before them had managed, and finally, Besieged in his castle, Khurshid wrote to the caliph in surrender. He was allowed to keep his life, but the entire region soon became an Arab province. It was named Tabaristan, and it will stay quiet for another few years. So let's put another pin in this subject and turn to something different altogether. We still have more to say about two of our three main subjects. But for now, we'll take a break from our regular programming to cover a short account we find on Sindh, which once more is part of modern-day Pakistan. It's a real shame how little our sources have on this part of the caliphate, but it makes sense considering that these early histories are based on oral narrations, which need Arabs to pass them along, and there were relatively few of them in Sindh. As with Khurasan, the main administrative problem facing this province was its distance from the capital. So Arab governors and commanders were basically on their own out there, making the area attractive to dissidents from the Ummah, whether they be Karajites or disgraced clans like the Muhallabs once upon a time. While I'm making it sound pretty far removed, despite being further away from the Ummah's heartlands than Khurasan, Sindh was actually better connected to the Caliphate. 
That's because the coastal province could be more readily accessed by sea, and the trade routes between the Indian subcontinent and the Arab peninsula were well known to the Ummah. So while the remoteness did cause real governance issues, the Caliphate could send armies to Sind with relatively little risk by following the coast, where even the land along it was easy to traverse. Anyway, I am just providing all this context to buttress the very short story we have about the province, which wouldn't be worth telling if it wasn't one of the rare examples of the lingering relevance of the tribal feud. Basically, the governor of Sindh was Adnani, and when he left his son in charge after his death, the Qahtanis protested and a mini-civil war broke out in this province. The caliph sent a small army to help God knows who, because our sources can't agree, but by the time the dust had settled, all sides were punished, and the governor of Sindh was in the caliph's dungeons. Unlike the Umayyads who preceded him, the Abbasid caliph did not validate the tribal feud by balancing its opposing sides within the caliphate. He was trying to do away with this model where Arabs were loyal to their tribes and the caliph earned their obedience by tying himself to their most powerful elders. From here on out, everyone was required to abide by their pledges to the caliph equally. I don't mean to make it sound grandiose or enlightened, it's more of a new refusal to admit to any political legitimacy outside of the caliph and his state. You might think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, and you're probably right, but trust me when I say that the conclusions I'm drawing from Sindh are borne out by other examples from across the caliphate, but in the interest of time and efficiency I am paraphrasing to make my point. The other version of the Sindh story, also from our sources, actually has very little in common with this one besides the tribal angle. But in it too, Al-Mansur's actions serve only to extinguish the feud and weaken its partisans. This socio-political transformation within the caliphate is a pretty important, if subtle, development, and we will dedicate more time to it in later episodes. Let's now return to one of our main subjects. Around the time the conquest of Tabaristan was getting started, a strange new uprising in the name of Abu Muslim is mentioned in our sources. It's clear that the account suffers heavily from the kind of distortion we discussed earlier, the one where our sources see everything through a lens of religious animus, and belittle their opponents' beliefs. I promise I am not editorializing here. Just wait until you hear more about how the Arabs remember these Rawandiyya. Their name probably comes from a town called Rawand, which is associated with their origins, though there are accounts that claim Rawand was their blasphemous preacher. We're only given ridiculous snippets of the Rawandiyya's purported beliefs, and it is hard to make heads or tails out of them. We're told they believed three prominent Arabs were actually incarnations of holiness. A guy named Haytham was the angel Gabriel, who had revealed God's word to the prophet, Another guy, Uthman, head of the caliph's guard and so personally implicated in Abu Muslim's death, was believed to be Adam, you know, from Adam and Eve, or he had Adam's soul or something, and Al-Mansur was God himself. I know it sounds crazy, but that's what we find in the oral narrations, and so we're sticking with it. In 759, between 600 and 1,000 of these Rawandiyya made their way to the caliph's palace something described as a sort of pilgrimage in our sources. The Rawandiyya said they just wanted the chance to bask in Al-Mansur's glory in person, but of course they were kept away 
and a couple hundred of their leaders were even arrested after the throng grew aggressive. The rest were undeterred. They forced their way into the dungeons and freed their friends, then together they all mobbed the caliph's palace gates. Othman, the palace guard captain, went to speak with them, and they shot him with a poison arrow, which I'm not sure why they would do if they believed him to be Adam. It wasn't long before al-Mansur grew impatient at being trapped in his court like this. Despite not even having a mount of his own, he went to personally lead his guards into battle. When one of his commanders tried to stop him, he waved away his concerns, though he did also commandeer his horse to lead the assault. We're not told how many soldiers the caliph could count on, but they must have been enough to deal with the threat posed by the desperate rabble. So, in short... A crowd of nearly 1,000 men from the east made their way to Iraq for reasons that are unclear, and upon their arrival they were soon dispatched by the caliph's army. The religious motives attributed to this mob are incoherent and incomprehensible. If they thought Uthman was an incarnation of Adam, then why shoot him with a poison arrow? If they believed al-Mansur was God, why not heed his commands when he asked them to leave? Finally, I find it especially suspicious that their beliefs are littered with Abrahamic elements like Adam, Gabriel, and God. The story of the Rwandia revolt is a curious one, which really showcases a weakness in oral histories. Not all narrations suffer from this level of distortion. What makes this episode especially bad is that it's about a rebellion by a group the Arabs did not deign to engage with. I'm just speculating here, but the Rawandiya could have just chanted a name, and the Arabs would have used that to construct some crazy story about how they worship this or that. Even if this story is especially dubious, it is still a stark reminder of just how malleable these histories can be, and how vigilant we must remain when analyzing the contexts and motivations surrounding different oral accounts. Apart from that, what is there to be said? I think we can all agree that they would have killed al-Mansur had they gotten their hands on him, so it was a mob akin to the one which rebelled against the third caliph, Uthman bin Affan. The key differences here were that al-Mansur had better walls and no compunction about personally killing every last one of them. We'll return to this subject of rebellions in the East once more before we end our episode. But let's go back to Tabarastan one last time for today. The caliph's son had begun the Arab invasion in 759, and Khurshid surrendered just a year or two into it, after Khazim and Omar smashed through his armies and fortifications. No longer the Isbahbad of his own realm, Khurshid was exiled to nearby Daylam, another one of the independent mountain kingdoms of the regions. Some accounts say he used the area as a base to mobilize against the caliphate in a desperate attempt to retake his beloved Tabaristan. There are few details in our sources, but we find lots of blustery snippets such as claims that he killed every Muslim he could find, and that the caliph was so angry he ordered 10,000 men from each of the four Iraqi cities to be sent to Daylam. I think it's all misplaced history, though, with narrators mistaking one year for another. I say this both because the accounts are unlikely, and they have no follow-through. One expects to find more oral material following a 40,000-man army, none of which is in our sources. Khurshid committed suicide in Daylam, by ingesting poison in 762 or 763. Khurshid's fatalism is a sort of hint at the growing control exercised by the Arabs in his region. 
It's unclear whether they invaded Dalem afterwards or not. It sort of remained a little independent, though it never posed a real threat to the caliphate either, so I'm not sure. But I'll look into it further as I comb through Al-Mansur's reign. In any case, Arab control of the east had been successfully re-established, and this not only kept the tributary states in line, but also minimized the potential for any further uprisings in the region. We're going to have to fast forward about five years before we hear about another popular movement against the Arabs, and this one is further east than any of the ones before. Another hint that the caliphate's grip over the lands we call Iran today was pretty tight. This last rebellion was led by a figure known only as Ustad Sis, which isn't Arabic, but it translates as, quote, one without a teacher or the untaught master. Unless I'm completely wrong, of course. Where Ustad Sis is originally from is unknown, and we find plenty of doubtful material casting him in dramatic roles. Some say he had once been a governor of Khurasan, though when that was goes unsaid. Others that his daughter was one of the noble women in the caliph's father's harem, and that he was in fact al-Mansur's maternal grandfather. Others still say he was a disciple of Behafarid, that heresy arch Sunpad is accused of following in his failed rebellion. While these claims are all baseless, considering how grandiose they are, we must assume that they are trying to convey the scale of the threat Ustath Sis posed to the caliphate. Although his origins remain a mystery, the geography and evolution of his rebellion do provide some clues. It's difficult to pin down his ethnicity because he ended up making common cause with so many of the vanquished peoples of the East that he could have belonged to any one of them. His movement started in western Afghanistan, either in the mountainous north of Zabulistan or closer to the south, near the cities of Herat and Sajistan. He put together a considerable army before deciding to lead it east to Khurasan's Arab capital of Maru. It is telling that he did not try to head west to face off against the caliphate proper. We're told he had over 300,000 men, though it's useful to keep in mind that the Arabs exaggerate the size of armies that beat them in battle. Still, it must have been a formidable force because they decimated the defenders of Maru and became a real threat to Arab control of the east. Hearing about this rout of his forces, the caliph quickly ordered Khazim ibn Khuzayma to go help his son regain control of the region. Al-Mahdi was now pretty much always in Nishapur, a relatively calm part of the east, from where he administered the region and supposedly endeared himself to its people with his open-handedness. Al-Mahdi put Khazim in charge of the war effort, a decision which Al-Mahdi's right-hand man, his vizier, disdained. The vizier was contemptuous of Khazim, and kept stopping his orders from being carried out. One account says that while Khazim was in the vizier's court, he fell ill and was fortunate to find a cure in time, which sounds like a foiled poison plot to me. Shortly after, Khazim rode to Nishapur and complained to the caliph's son that he would be unable to carry out his duty unless he was made supreme commander, something which al-Mahdi immediately granted. I guess you just don't say no to the man known for winning wars wasn't a minute too soon either. The war against Ustad Sis had gone terribly, and the rebel now had all sorts of allies. Yabrus from Tukharistan, the Khutal, men from Zabulistan, Muruz, Fu'uz, Sagrians, and pretty much every unfamiliar name you've heard me say while discussing the East, and then some. Not that it mattered to Khazim. 
His strategy involved digging a system of trenches and using them very creatively. One thing about this commander was his constant innovation on the battlefield. In previous and later battles against other foes, he became the first Arab commander to effectively use oil and fire, and the first to deploy caltrops against enemy cavalry. The details of how this trench system worked are a little hard to follow, but in his fight against Ustad Sis's armies, he would force them to go around from one side to another by reinforcing the locations he knew they would start with. Then he would guide them towards some trap where he would personally lead his men in a charge against their tired and confused opponents. The fighting was fierce, and it is just Khazim's genius that makes it sound easy. The war ground on for months, with gradual but steady progress by the Arab army, which may have been around 40,000 strong, though possibly even larger. In the fiercest engagement of that war, Al-Tabari reports over 70,000 of Ustad Sisi's men killed and 15,000 taken captive, all of whom were later put to death. Ustad Sisi's right-hand man was killed, and Ustad Sisi himself fled with another 30,000 men to the safety of some nearby mountains, probably near Badris or Zabulistan. Khazam pursued them, and had them in such dire straits that they surrendered without condition. Ustad Sisi, his family, and his entire army of 30,000 were all taken captive. Al-Mansur ordered the execution of this troublemaker, but later granted amnesty to all those who had been captured with him, a rare but generous gesture of mercy. We are nearing the end of our episode. In fact, I don't think there's anything else I wish to add. There were a couple other rebellions that I've skipped over entirely, mainly due to how badly documented and improbable they are. One was led by a man named Ishaq al-Turk, known as such for his frequent dealings with the people of Tukharistan, which is modern-day Turkmenistan. I know Turkmen and Turks are different, but back then, those we know as Turks today were still somewhere in the area, possibly even further east than the Turkmen themselves. His association with the Turks predates and sort of foreshadows Ustad Sisi's success at incorporating them in his own rebellion many years later. Another figure was the mysterious Hashim al-Muqanna, or Hashim the Masked, who appeared in Belch. Little is known about the man. It's not even clear if he actually existed at all. His title invites weird stories about how he had come to earn it, and some say he wore a mask all the time because his face was too holy to behold. Unlike Ustad Sis, both Hashim and Ishaq were said to have made claims about being Abu Muslim's spiritual successors, Though how much of this is Arab fantasy, I suppose we will never know. Some sources refer to all these movements, from Sunpath to Ustad Sis, as Abu Muslimiyyah, relating them to the figure of the vanquished champion of the East. Other sources use Rawandiyya, in reference to that relatively tame movement of fewer than a thousand men. The size of the Rawandiyya crowd may have been unimpressive, but it makes sense that the Arabs would use their name to describe all Eastern movements. Unlike the larger, more dangerous rebellions, the Rawandiyya were the only ones who reached the solidly Arab cities of Iraq, making their name known to the Ummah. After our longest episode yet, I hope you'll agree that the way Al-Mansur addressed the many challenges posed to him by the East was truly impressive. Like a masterful chess player, Al-Mansur's actions reveal both tactical and strategic brilliance. He responded to immediate problems in ways which built towards a stable vision for the East. 
while all the rebellions which sprang up in the aftermath of a Muslim's executions might make it seem like killing him was a bad move, it was in fact quite the opposite, maybe even the only move. The caliph could never wield actual power while there was such a potent and independent actor in faraway Khurasan. The military response to the subsequent rebellions was quick and decisive, but at the same time he empowered Arabs who had been close to Abu Muslim. He also stationed his son in the east to further his dynastic prospects. His overall strategy to wear down the rebellious spirit of the east and that of the independent kingdoms of northern Iran worked perfectly. Anyone hoping to use the chaos of Abu Muslim's execution to break away was efficiently thwarted by this brilliant caliph. Given the East's importance to the Abbasid Caliphate, there is no second-guessing how absolutely critical al-Mansur's success here would turn out to be. We can only take this longer view of history from our comfortable vantage point over a millennium later, and al-Mansur himself would probably disagree with our assertion that this was the most important thing he'd done. Next time, we will discuss what he saw as the greatest challenge to his power and how he dealt with it, here on The Caliphs the rise and fall of Arab power. Mm-hmm.